Um, my, I'm, I'm apostolic and prophetic, and so we kind of have an apostolic and prophetic church. We have all kinds of sister churches. We minister to all kinds of people all over the country. And so, um, uh, and certainly I'm pastoral, certainly I can teach. But what Brant Green brings to our church brings balance and brings um, just a solidity in the scriptures. And Grant has what I would call a pure teaching gift. He's going to get up here and he's going to open the scriptures and he's going to turn to way more scriptures than I turn to. But he, it, it, I mean, that's a part of his gifting, but he's going to make it so plain and he's going to connect the dots. And what's going to happen is it's going to bring a sense of balance to your spiritual diet. Because when I get up here, a lot of times I'll flow prophetically, and um, that's a part of my gifting. I don't get up here with a pure teaching gift. I can teach, but even when I teach, the prophetic is still in there and the apostolic is still in there. But when Grant teaches, he's going to get up and give you a pure teaching gift. So it's very important to not just feed on what I have, but to feed on what he has as well, because it's going to give this church a balanced diet. Everybody tracking me here? And, and there's, different, there's, a fi, there's five different, you know, fivefold ministry giftings in the body of Christ, and we actually need all of those in order to be healthy. And so uh, I'm grateful for him and thankful for him, and I'm really looking forward to hearing him. So let's give it up for Mr. Fraley here this morning. We love him. We appreciate him. I'm not going to do the awkward preacher hug. We know each other. We love each other. Let's see if I can wiggle my way through here. All right. I am excited to be here this morning. Man, appreciate those words that were given during communion. Awesome. Um, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we're going to begin with verse 13. Let's see. What translation do you have? No, I mean, it doesn't matter. Which one is that? It's cool. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All right, Book of Mormon, yeah. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. It's not going to hurt. Let's go to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. We're going to read it real quick. Um, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So this has taken place right after the resurrection of Jesus, but he's not appeared uh, to, you know, in the upper room to the disciples just yet. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, referring to the, the death, the burial, and the rumors of the resurrection. Verse 15, And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were hidden or, or restrained that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of, of talk are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Are you only a stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which are come to pass here in these days, or there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, 
And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher or the grave. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe. Now notice what he says here. He says, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning at Moses. Now, we have to understand Moses Moses didn't just start writing in Exodus. Moses also wrote the book of Genesis. So he's saying, beginning at Genesis and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village where they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not, here's why we're here, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? and while he opened to us the scriptures. Now, when it says he opened to us the scripture, here's the question that I asked when I read this. What was it that he opened in the scriptures? Verse 27 said, Unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning what? Himself. So what Jesus did was Jesus took and Jesus preached Jesus using the scriptures. That's always been so powerful to me. That he didn't just show up and he's like, listen, you see me on the cross, you buried me, you wrapped me up, you know, you know I was dead, now look at me. That wasn't enough. He used the scriptures. And I think that is just so powerful. But I love it here that they said, did not our heart burn within us? And he wasn't just giving them history of the scriptures. Right, He wasn't just giving them the timeline. He wasn't just giving them doctrine. He was revealing to them himself. Right Now think about how ludicrous that sounds. Why couldn't Jesus just say, well, this is how I am. I'm like this. This was the whole reason I did this. This is the reason I did that. I do this this way and that way. No, he used the scriptures. And I think that's so powerful. And it shows us the power of the scriptures. But they said, did not our heart burn within us? And I think it's interesting that they didn't say their heart burned when they sat down and ate with him. They didn't say that their heart burned when he revealed himself and they knew it was him. They said, didn't our heart burn within us when he, when he opened up the scriptures to us? Did not our heart burn within us when we seen him in the scriptures? Not, did not our heart burn within us when he sat before us? Did not our heart burn when he opened to us the scriptures? Right? And I feel like, you know, I, I honestly feel like part of the mandate I have from God in my ministry is to give people a hunger and a love for the scriptures. 
right? And, and I know that's my role, and I honor that. And I, I don't want to amaze people. I don't want to wow people. That's not my goal. My goal is for you to be like, you know what? There's more to the Scriptures than I realize, and I want to dig for myself. I want to see for myself, right? And so, I, I, but think about this. Where did the early church learn about Jesus? You know, and I'm not, um, I mean, we mostly preach from the New Testament. That's fine, but, but the early church didn't have a New Testament. Right now, they had eyewitness accounts. You know, Peter was around, John was around, and they would tell them these things. They didn't even have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. History tells us that the Gospels were written after Paul's epistles. So Paul wrote everything he wrote uh, without the Gospels, without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, and I've ministered about this on here, there, there's an idea that we have, and, and it's commonly taught, well, you know, Jesus appeared to Paul in Arabia, and he taught him, you know, the new covenant and grace. There's one problem with that. Paul never said that, and the Scripture doesn't claim that, okay? So we're actually trying to, to connect some dots there that aren't there. Paul never says Jesus appeared to him and taught him the new covenant. He never says Jesus appeared to him and taught him the message of grace, um, it's another message for another day. But what I believe Paul did was Paul went and got alone because Paul was a student of the Scriptures and he began to read them through a lens that he had never read them before. He read them in Christ. And as he read them in Christ, he began to see that the, there was one message beginning with Moses through all the prophets and it was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right? So... So we, we do need to understand that. And, and I said, let's go to Acts chapter 26. And I say that because we have this idea, and, and I'm setting you up for where I'm going. We have this idea that Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Now, the Old Testament can be used in a bad way, right? It can be used to beat people up. But when you, when you come to the understanding, well, I'm not under that covenant, right? I'm, I'm not under that covenant. So when it says, you know, if you do this, God's going to get you, things like that. When I understand that's not my covenant, I learned, listen, you don't have to be afraid of any scripture. When you are in Christ, you do not have to be afraid of one scripture. Not one verse, not one word, not one book. You don't have to be afraid of any of it, right? And so look here at Acts chapter 26, verse 19. I love this verse. So this is Paul, and he's testifying before uh, King Agrippa. And he's, he's, he's gave his testimony, but we're going to drop at the end here. He says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day. Now listen to this. We read over this. Listen to this. Witnessing both to small and great, saying, look at those three words, none other things, or there are no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer and that he should raise from the dead uh, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. So notice what Paul says. 
Paul did not come along and say the New Testament is completely new doctrine. He said, I'm actually not teaching anything that's not already been taught in the Long of Prophets. No other thing. So Paul's saying there's not one thing that I teach that I can't back up with Scripture. And he's not talking Romans, he's not talking Galatians, he's not talking Corinthians, he's talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way to Malachi. He's saying everything I teach, I can back up with those uh, books. Right? And so there's power here, because here's the apostle of grace saying, I use the Old Testament. I preach the Old Testament. Right? Why? Because they didn't have this idea of Old and New Testament. Now, I'm not against that, right? Like, I, I think it's, 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 it, there's, it's good to know, all right? Uh, it kind of makes it a little bit more clear for people. This is the covenant you're under, this covenant. I'm okay with that. But that was a foreign idea to the early church. So when Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God, he had one thing in mind, Genesis through Malachi. And here's the thing that amazes me. He said it's good for doctrine. It's good for correction. Genesis through Malachi. Right? Now, but we don't find one place where Paul said, listen, i got to correct you. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5 when there was a case of the man uh, that looks like sleeping with his mother-in-law, a, a, an offense that under the law was punishable by death. Paul didn't show up and say, listen, Scripture's good for correction. Stone him. He, see, so he understood the covenant. Right, he was interpreting it through the lens of the covenant, but it's just I just want to bring that out. Now go with me to Micah chapter five verse two. But let me say this: so, so Paul said, "Nothing I have taught is not in the scriptures; It's not in Genesis through Malachi." When the early church, how did the early church learn about Jesus? How did they learn about the new covenant? They went to Genesis through Malachi. They went to what we call the Old Testament. And what they discovered was they looked at the types. They looked at the shadows. They looked at the prophecies. And they seen Jesus. Right? I like to think of it this way, and I've said it for myself, but think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul once read those very same scriptures and said, this gives me a right to kill people. But when Jesus came to his heart, and he received the revelation of Jesus, then all of a sudden those same scriptures ministered life. So where he used to look and he only seen death, now he looked and he only seen life, right? So, so they, they, and this is what we need. We need to get back to where we believe in a Jesus that is, that is according to the Scriptures. Because, we, you know, culture tries to make us believe in a, in a Jesus that is, is, you know, woke, a Jesus that is, you know, that, that's just a God in our own image, Right? Uh, legalism tries to tries to get us to, to believe in a Jesus that's you know only uh, goes with particular scriptures. Every movement that's what is that way, right? You know, I, I had the thought yesterday. I felt the Lord spoke to me. He said the enemy doesn't care what movement you're a part of. Faith, grace, enemy doesn't care. He doesn't care if you go around saying I'm part of the grace movement. That doesn't scare him, right? He doesn't care what new revelation you have, right? You know, that, that, that is not what he cares about if your life isn't built on a firm foundation. And that firm foundation is Jesus according to the Scriptures. Amen. Jesus and Him crucified, right? Uh, so Micah uh, chapter 5, verse 2. This is one of my favorite verses uh, in all the Scripture. But it says, but you... So it's actually a prophecy. 
It's, it's, it's the prophecy where uh, we learn where Jesus would be born. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Now, I love this because here's something I love. There's actually a prophecy for our future here. Notice it does not say the ruler of Israel, but the ruler in Israel. His first coming, he didn't rule in Israel. His second coming, he will rule physically, literally, in Israel. So that's still to be fulfilled. Who's going forth? Notice it's going, plural. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now what this is saying is, there's one instance where it's saying, listen, the one who's going to be born of a virgin is eternal. He was around before the virgin. He was around before his mother. He was, he was around, uh, you know, we're going to learn here in a minute in Genesis 1.1. But when I read this, this is the vision that God gave me when, when he spoke to me about this verse, you know, a while back. Whose goings forth are from of old. When you open your Bible and you, you just flip through it, it's as if he's just walking through those verses. He's walking through those words. He's walking through those pages. He's all in the book. I used to read the Bible in search of rules. Now I read the Bible in search of Jesus. And I find him everywhere. I find him on every page. And so here's what, what I'm going to do. And this is actually going to take me at least two messages, maybe three over time. But... Um, the book of Genesis, you guys have heard me say, the book of Genesis is my favorite book in the Bible. I like the book of Genesis. I get more of the book of Genesis than I do Romans, Galatians, Colossians, all of those. God just really speaks to me through the book of Genesis. Um, and the, the book of, you know, there was one year I read the, the book of Genesis through like eight times. You know, and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying what would happen is I would read that and I would finish and I'd think, man, that's good. And I'd just start back over. You know, because you remember Second Peter chapter three, where he, or actually it's Second Peter chapter one, where he says, "No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation." Now it's true in the way we commonly teach it, and it's correct that 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 listen, you can't go and, and interpret the Bible and make it say what you want it to say, right? When we know that's true. And that's, that's a kind of a word of wisdom I give people. Listen, if you hear some minister and he's saying something that nobody on the face of God's green earth else is saying, it's probably a private interpretation, and you need to back off. All right? But um, that word private actually means pertaining to self. So what he's actually saying is there's no scripture that pertains to self. There's no scripture that's about you. It's about him. All right? And you'll find the scriptures about you when you find the scriptures about him because you are in him. All right? So, and, I, and I've taught on that recently here before. There's actually not one promise in the Bible that was written for you. The promises in the scripture were written for Jesus. And here's the good news. Where are you? In Jesus. Why, what's the point of that? Why are you bringing that out? Because as long as I think the promise is to me, the ifs and the buts will cancel it out. I'll disqualify myself. But when I realize the promise is to Jesus, and I realize that I am in him, 
and I realize that he's qualified for every promise, then every promise to me is yes and amen, right? Um, so the, the book of Genesis is my favorite book in the Bible, and I want to take my time with this, but the book of Genesis is the book of seed. Every doctrine in the Bible, every major doctrine, I don't care what it is, in its seed form, it's in the book of Genesis. Um, spiritual warfare in seed form, book of Genesis. Uh, authority in its seed form, book of Genesis. The return of Jesus in its seed form, book of Genesis. We're going to learn here in a few minutes, predestination, foreknowledge, all of that technical stuff, book of Genesis. Everything is in the book of Genesis. And, uh, and it's in its seed form, and, and we, we tend to look over it because, you know, especially if you were like me, you were raised up in Sunday school, these are just stories you grew up with. It's like a movie you watch and that you enjoy and you go watch over and over and over again. But listen, here's what I learned. Your heart doesn't burn within you reading about Abraham. Your, your heart doesn't burn within you reading about Joseph, reading about Isaac, reading about jo Jacob. But when you realize that when it talks about Abraham, it's talking about Jesus, your heart begins to burn. When you realize even though it says Noah, it's talking about Jesus, your heart begins to burn. When you realize that it says Joseph, but it's talking about Jesus, your heart begins to burn, right? And here's what's, good, what's cool about this, is it takes the Holy Spirit to give you these things. Now, there's some things that I'm going to talk about that, yeah, I, I learned from other people, but a lot of this, listen, it's just the Holy Spirit just, just quickening things to you. And that takes the Holy Spirit. That's why to this day, and the Scripture prophesied that it would happen, when Israel reads these same scriptures, the Jewish people, they don't see it. They, they read Noah, and you know who they think it's talking about? Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, all those guys. There, there's, there's blindness, right? But when the Holy Spirit comes, he takes the blinders off, and he shows you Jesus, and your heart begins to burn, and you suddenly can't get enough of this book. It's suddenly no longer boring to you. It's not just Sunday school stories. It's not just, you know, the chosen. It's not just, it's, it's, it's real. He sat down and he revealed himself. They did not realize it was Jesus until after he had opened the scriptures to them. That is powerful to me, right? So, so the book of Genesis that I found reveals uh, Jesus like, no, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So we actually see something in the Hebrew here that, that proves all of this that I've said. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the Hebrew, this is seven words, seven Hebrew words. And um, all seven, uh, six of the seven words are translated. So there's three words, uh, Hebrew words, that are translated, in the beginning, God created. All right? Then there's this one Hebrew word that they didn't translate. And then there's, there's three more that they translated, the heavens and the earth. All right? Um, but that word in the middle is two Hebrew letters. It's the Aleph Tav. All right? The Aleph Tav is the, Aleph is the first Hebrew letter. The Tav is the last Hebrew letter. Um, when Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, around verse 8, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, the Alpha was the first Greek letter. The Omega was the last Greek letter. But now, Jesus, being a Jew, likely would have, would have spoken Hebrew. 
John wrote it in Greek, but Jesus likely said it in Hebrew. So what Jesus likely said is, I am the Aleph and I'm the Tav. Right? Um, and, and before modern Hebrew, which most, like if you go and you look at Hebrew, you're going to see it in modern Hebrew. Before modern Hebrew, there was a thing known as Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo-Hebrew was not letters, it was pictures. The Aleph looks like at the, the head of an ox. The Tav looks like a T or a cross. So the Aleph Tav in the original writings would have looked like the head of an ox and a cross, a sacrifice. So right here in the very first verse of the Bible, it's letting you know, it's right in the center. That's not by accident. Three words interpreted, one not, three words interpreted. Right in the center, it's letting you know everything you're about to read for the next 66 books has one purpose. And I love this that he that I love this that it's that, that the olive and the tov is a is a sacrificed animal. Because it's not just about Jesus. It's about Jesus and him crucified. We've got to be literary. Remember, I said we've got to get back to Jesus according to the scriptures. When like what Jeremiah was saying a while ago about the blood of Christ is once again going to be honored in the body. When people try to remove the blood element, when they try to remove the sacrifice element, run. Because here in the very first book, in the very first verse, God is saying, Christ and Him crucified is the center of everything you're about to read. See, because we read this and we think it's just about, you know, God creating. No, it's letting you know God created and He had something in mind. What did He have in mind? Revelation 13 says that Jesus was, was slain. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Right here. We see that. Isn't that good? One verse. We're one verse. We're seven Hebrew letters into the Bible, and it's like an explosion of revelation of Jesus. There's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Like, imagine, right? And so, man. All right. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And I'm not going to be able to show you everything in the book of Genesis, but I do want to show you a lot because it is good. And the Lord God said, so this is after God has created Adam. God creates Adam. He's not been created yet. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Verse 19. Oh, you didn't have Genesis. You didn't have, that's cool. It's all right. We'll get it. Let's go to, let me, let me pull it up on my iPad real quick. Genesis 2. 19. Uh, and out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But from, for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. Okay. So I, I want you to notice this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall. I, I want you to notice something here. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So notice God's plan here, and we're going to see he's going to create Eve. 
God's plan here for the man was to have a bride. Before the man even really knows his need for one, God says, my plan for you is for you to not be alone. My plan for you is to have a bride. It's God's plan. Now go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed. Now, I want you to start noticing things. He says, who has blessed us. He did not say you. Doesn't mean you're not blessed, but there's, there's a point here. He has blessed us, right? So there's a difference, me speaking to you this morning, there's a difference when I say me and when I say us. Even if I say you, if I say you, that's different than us, right? Because when I say us, you know the moment I say us, I'm talking about all of us, right? Everyone in this room. But if I just say me or you, that, that, that narrows it down, right? So Paul says he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, now, here's what I, I'm, I'm about to get at. Well, let me read on. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. All right? Now, the, the idea of predestination is something that trips people up because, you know, there, there's a lot of the church that teaches before the foundation of the world, God said, all right, You'll go to heaven, you'll go to hell, you'll get saved, you won't, you'll be a drug dealer, you'll be a pastor, right? That's the idea of this extremely controlling God, and we're basically just robots. Um, so there, there's this, but, but I want you to know something. He doesn't say he predestinated you. That's important. It says he predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Remember, it's not good for man to be alone. So God looked at Adam alone and he said, that doesn't give me pleasure. But before the foundation of the world, he seen something that gave him pleasure. Let's look. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the, his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now look at verse 13. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Here's what I'm getting at. God did not predestine individuals to be saved and individuals to be lost. What God predestined was us. What God predestined was we. What God predestined was a bride. A bride for his son. 
God predestined a people, not a person. The one person he predestined was the man, Christ Jesus. Outside of that, it was we, us, the body, the church. Now, here's where you come in. I believe that God, God did not make anybody. He did not make a piece of junk. Every person God created, he has good plans for them. That's his character. That's his nature. Every individual that comes into this world, God has a plan for them to eventually find their purpose in Christ Jesus. That's his, that's his will for everyone. But notice he's talking about us, us. We were predestined. The church, the body, the bride was predestined. But you had to trust. You had to be sealed, right? So it's up to each individual whether or not they will accept Jesus. But Adam here is a picture. It was God's plan for the man to have a bride. Right? If God had predestined... No, I'm not going to get into that. I, I don't want to get off on a tangent on something, you know, nobody really cares about. But Romans 8, verse 29 and 30 says the same thing. Paul said, he says, those whom were, uh, those whom were predestined, those who whom I for, he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also chose. Right? The idea is, notice, plural. And in the Greek, it's plural. Right? We were chosen. Right? Every individual, this is why evangelism is so important, because listen, if, if each individual is predestined, then what's the point of evangelism? It's a, it's if God's going to save them, He's going to save them. If not, they're not going to be saved. There's nothing we can do about it. We're wasting our time. Let's go make some money and live and eat and get the Bengals to the Super Bowl, right? Like, <laughs> like um, I had to throw that in. But um, but we were predestined, right? So uh, and then Genesis two nineteen and twenty, He said, "I will make a helper comparable to Him." That's us. We are comparable to Jesus. Not in the sense that we're God. right? We're not God. But yet, he says, my righteousness is now your righteousness. right? My peace is now your peace. My joy is now joy, uh, your joy. My ability is now your ability. My power is now your power. My grace is now your grace. The, that's why Paul would come along and he'd say, those who are joining to the Lord are one spirit with him. What's that mean? We're a helper comparable to him. That's powerful. But it's all right there in Genesis 2 when, when God had a plan. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, we're going to see a little bit more about Jesus. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. What do you think this is? Jesus dies. He caused a deep... because. Remember, before this, there's no bride. Before the cross, there's no bride. There's no church before the cross. Right? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. There's no deeper sleep than death. All right? And he slept. He was buried. Right? I'm not saying Adam was buried. Jesus was buried. He slept. That's why all through the New Testament, you never read in the New Testament in a solid translation, where it refers to, to those who have died as being dead. They always sleep. 
This is what it's illustrating here. So Jesus slept, and he took one of his ribs, then closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. He brought her unto the man. No man can come unto me unless the Father draws him. Powerful. And Adam said, now look here, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know what he's saying? This is now my body. What is another name for the church in the New Testament? The body of Christ. So now Jesus looks at the church and says, this is now bone of my bones. This is now flesh of my flesh. Isn't it interesting, though, he doesn't say this is blood of my blood? Because it's only about his blood. We're his body, but it's about his blood. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And this is a beautiful picture of the bride doesn't have to be ashamed in front of the man. Right? Christ, we don't have to be ashamed in front of Christ. Man, that, that's just such an awesome picture. There's no shame. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we read it and we think, oh, there's just two people walking around in the garden, butt naked. Right? Not ashamed. And we can't, we can't relate to that. We're like, not me, you know. <laughs> but when Paul read this, Paul said, and he said it in Ephesians 5. We won't turn there. But Paul said in Ephesians 5, this is a mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and his church. And he was talking, he was quoting these verses. Right? So Paul read, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And what he read was, listen, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Everything that is ours belongs to him. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. We are his bride. Isn't that good? Like, that is so, so good. Uh, jump over to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at beginning with verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And you alluded to it a few weeks back. God, Adam actually did not blame the woman. He was actually blaming God. Like he said, the woman you gave me, but the emphasis really is on you gave me. You gave me the woman. So Eve blames God. What's Adam do? And the Lord God, uh, let me see here. Um, and the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So here's something I want to point out. Adam blames God. Uh, Eve blames the devil. These are the first two people that, that blame God and the devil for everything. But who was the blame? They were. Right? Ultimately, they were. Um, so that's that choice thing. But anyways, let, let's get here. I want to read here. Let's go on down. Verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now this is known as the first uh, messianic prophecy in the Bible. 
It shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, the interesting thing about this is it says your, her seed. A woman doesn't have seed. Right? A man has seed. And when it comes to conception, a man provides the seed. All right, this isn't, a, this isn't that kind of class. We won't go into that. But, you know, I just assume you all know, right? Uh, so, but notice, a woman doesn't have a seed. So here we've got the first prophecy of the virgin birth, right? Because God, God is the one who put the seed within the woman. Joseph had nothing to do with it. So, so that, that's that. But, but I want to look here. He said, but he will bruise your heel. Or he will bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. What he's got in mind here, we read that and what we think of is on the cross, you know, the, 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 the heels were crossed, the two feet were crossed, and they would drive a, a nail through those two heels. So we tend to think in the way we read this, and it's not wrong, I just don't think it's the context. We tend to read this as, okay, the way Jesus' heel was bruised was a nail on the cross. But what the prophecy is actually saying is, when the, the seed of the woman comes and crushes your head, He's going to crush it so hard. He's going to crush it so strong that it'll bruise his heel. All right? And that's what happened on the cross. What, ha what, what bruised his heel on the cross was much more than a nail going through it. What bruised his heel on the cross was he crushed the serpent's authority. He crushed it. Right? 1 John 3, 8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might crush it. Right? And where did he do that? On the cross, through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, uh, alludes to the same thing. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The enemy thought he was putting an end to Jesus, but it was actually, he thought it was Jesus' death, but it was actually his. He thought it was Jesus' defeat, but it was his defeat. Right? And that, that's just, it's such a powerful picture. Now here, what I'm about to show you is probably one of my favorite things about Jesus in Genesis. So we're reading on here, Genesis 3, 16. So he turns his attention to the woman, he says, and to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And, and let me say this about when God says in the Old Testament, I will. In the Hebrew, uh, that actually can mean that, that you know, he's, what he's bringing out to them is this is actually now going to be the result. It's not necessarily God saying, I'm doing this. I'm going to cause you the pain when you bring forth that baby. It's God saying, listen, I warned you. I told you this would happen. Now here's what's going to happen. All right? All right? So, um, in sorrow you will bring forth children, and your desire will be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17. Uh, and unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you will not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you will eat of it all the days of, of your life. Now here's why we're here. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you. Um, go to John chapter 19, verse 1. Um, thorns and thistles 
it will bring forth to you. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now we know that when Jesus went on the cross that he was taking upon himself the what? The curse, right? So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, verse 2, and the soldiers twisted a crown of what? Thorns. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. The curse. Soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now let me ask you about thistles because I didn't realize this. Does anyone in here know what color thistles are? They're purple. If you Google, go up on Google, Google thistles, go to images, your phone will light up purple. They're purple. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a what? Purple robe. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. So they read and think they're being cursed, but their curse is going to be turned to a blessing. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. You're three chapters in. Like we're not even done with chapter three, right? I mean, this is so good. Genesis chapter three, verse nineteen. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you are returned. And I love this, you know, I love Acts chapter two, where Peter preaches a sermon. He's like, Listen, death had to release him because it was impossible for him to be held by. And then he says, David. He died, he's still dead. What was he saying? David's dust. This man, he's not dust. It was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Because he didn't come from dust. Adam came from the ground. The man Jesus came from heaven. Right? He wasn't created of dust, so he couldn't return to dust. And that's why he said, he said, you will not allow my flesh to see corruption. Right? That's so good. Um, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So now what I want to bring out here, and I've, ta- I've done whole messages on this, this is the first blood sacrifice. This is the first actual picture of the importance of blood in Scripture. Because he made tunics of skin, he made clothes of skin. How did he get those? There's only one way he got those. God himself had to make a sacrifice. God had to spill blood. This is another picture of the cross that even though you know we may read it as the Romans did it, even though we may read that the Jews did it, Isaiah comes along with a prophecy that we don't quite understand, but it's what the Scripture says. It says it pleased the Father to bruise him. So even though God is not the author of death, I believe that when he was doing this, it pleased him. Why? Because he knew he was covering up their shame. He knew he was covering up their guilt. He knew he was covering up their condemnation. So this is a picture here of the value and the importance of blood. God has a blood economy. And people say, well, that just sounds sadistic. No, God himself would spill the blood. God himself would spill the blood. Um, so, and, and remember that something God told Adam, he said, in the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. He said, in the day thereof you eat. 
Now, there's one way we know that means that we know, we know Adam just didn't die physically, but he, he experienced a spiritual death. His spirit was no longer in union with God once he ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But there's another thing here. I believe the reason that Adam didn't physically die that day was because God made a sacrifice. So, because Adam lived, you know, if, if he sinned right away, he lived 900 plus years. But why didn't he die that day? That's what God says. And God says that whenever something leaves his mouth, it's a covenant. And the word of his covenant he will not break, nor alter the thing that's gone out of his lips. So did he alter? No, he, he took a higher spiritual law, a higher spiritual principle. What is that? Blood. So instead of Adam dying, a sacrifice died. What's that a picture of? Instead of you dying, instead of me dying, a sacrifice died. Instead of our blood being spilled, God spilled blood for us. That's powerful. It's all about, G notice it's not just about Jesus' teachings. It's not just about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about the parables. It's about Christ and Him crucified. Right? Now, His teachings are powerful. His teachings, He says in Matthew 7, that listen, you build your life on these things. When storms come, you won't fall apart. Right? That's important, but it's worthless without the blood, without the cross, without the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Genesis 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And I love this. Behold, the man has become as one of us. Adam has become as one of us. And then Jesus comes along and if we knew that was God, we could look at him and say, now God has become as one of us. That's powerful. That's so powerful. Uh, to know good and evil, and now lest he puts forth his hand and takes also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Jesus said in John chapter 6, we don't have to turn there, he said, but I am the bread that if any man will eat of, he will live forever. He will never see or taste death. So, Jesus is the tree of life. That if we'll eat from, we'll never die. That we will live forever. Jesus is the tree of life. That's another powerful truth in Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. So this is after Cain and Abel. And there, there's, there's more about Jesus in the verses above this. Like Cain, Cain tried to go around a blood sacrifice. And remember, Jude warns us. He says, beware of those who go the way of Cain. How did Cain go? He tried to go without a blood sacrifice. So again, remember what I said? Anybody tries to take the blood out, the cross out, run? That's what Jude was teaching. Watch out those who go the way of Cain, who say, here's the work of my hands. Right? Not, not blood. All right. But anyways, um, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And then verse 11, just that first little part. And now you're cursed from the earth. Here's what I want to bring up. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. So notice he said that the blood of Cain uh, Abel was crying, and then he curses him. Why? 
Because what was Abel's blood crying? It was crying out for justice. When you look at that word in the Hebrew, it means crying out for help. God, come help me. Come do something. We see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 6 when it talks about those who have died on account of their faith. They go up to, they're, they're, they go and they're crying. They're saying, how long before you avenge our blood? All right? Um, so, so we see that's kind of the way of man. We want justice. We want vengeance. Again, not saying God's against justice, but that's just that's that's what we tend to cry out. But look here in Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you're come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and into an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What are the better things that the blood of Jesus speaks of? Abel's blood spoke of justice. Abel's blood cried out for help. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32 Jesus on the cross, there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And they were come to the place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Look here. Then said Jesus, think about this, blood pouring. Blood not only pouring, blood pouring to the ground. Where did Abel's blood crawl from? The ground, right? But look what the blood of Jesus spoke. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. So what is the so so Abel's blood cried out for justice, vengeance, and help. Jesus' blood cries out forgiveness for us all. That's the better thing that the blood of Jesus speaks, forgiveness. We learned about that. Connie talks about that in communion. That's what the 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 juice, the the the, the cup represents at the communion table. The blood of Jesus that cries out what? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Right? They don't know what they're doing. Have you ever, somebody's trapped in sin, you're like, what are you doing? They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and that's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. All right. Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to, the way we'll finish up is with Noah. Here's the cool thing about the story of Noah. Jesus, in this story, Jesus is Noah. In this story, Jesus is the ark. Why do I bring that out? We, try, we go back to these stories and we make them about us. That's just what we do. I, I'm Abraham. I'm, I'm Noah. And I'm not saying you can't put yourself in those guys' shoes. They were written for our example. But first and foremost, everyone, all the good guys, here, here's a good rule of interpretation. All the good guys, not you. The good guys, Jesus. Usually you're the bad guy in the story. Let's just be honest. Like Abraham and Lot, we'll get to that, you know, soon. Abraham and Lot, we read that and say, I'm Abraham and I gotta intercede for the nation. I gotta intercede so people will be saved. No, you're Lot. Jesus is Abraham. And he intercedes for you so that you can get out of Sodom and get out of Gomorrah. You're not the one getting people out of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're the one who's about to be toast in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? 
you're the bad guy in the story. Yeah, not the bad guy. Lot wasn't the bad guy. Lot was the dumb guy. So that's even better. You're the dumb guy in the story. All right? You're not the bad guy. You're the dumb guy in the story. All right? The enemy's always the bad guy. You just get to be, we just get to be the dumb guys. All right? Um, praise God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Uh, let's jump down to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So I want you to notice, remember I said at the beginning, you don't have to be afraid of any part of Scripture. There's a lot of people that read about the flood and they're scared of it. How, how, how? Look for Jesus, right? The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make you an ark of gopher wood. So I want you to notice something. All right, Noah. Now remember, Noah is Jesus. Father speaking to Jesus. I'm going to have to destroy this. Right? The earth is corrupt. All flesh is evil before me. But he gives Noah a plan. He says, I got a way for you and, and your family to be saved. But there's something interesting here. It involves wood. It involves wood. And gopher wood is something that, like, historic, like um, archaeologists, they can't really tell you what it is. But there's an assumption that it's this one type of tree and that that one type of tree was indestructible. That no matter what, have, no matter what season that tree was in, it was indestructible. That's the closest they come to finding out what gopher wood is. But notice, something made of wood is going to be the salvation of the people. All right? Make rooms in the ark. In my father's house are many mansions. Mansions, now, God doesn't do cheap, and I'm sure heaven is full of beautiful homes, right? But that word actually in the Greek, it means rooms. In my father's house are many rooms okay make rooms in the ark now here's what i love and covered inside and outside with pitch so the idea is you take this tar you think you take this pitch and anywhere you see a crack anywhere you see a hole you you put that pitch on it, right just like we like we would do with tar and things um and the idea is that way no rain can get inside the ark it's going to hit the ark and that's as far as it's going the word pitch, this is so interesting. In the word pitch, this word everywhere else is translated atonement, reconciliation, and propitiation. Leviticus chapter 1, when God says, bring the sacrifice before me and they will be an atonement, that word atonement is the same word that was translated as pitch here. So what he actually is saying is, and covered inside and outside with atonement. So think about this. Rain is a type of wrath. We could dress it up all we want to, say the rain, flood, wasn't wrath. It was wrath, okay? Uh, so wrath hits the ark, hits that thing which is made of wood. The wrath of God comes upon and touches that thing made of wood. But it doesn't touch the people inside. Why? It's the atonement, the reconciliation, 
the propitiation keeps the wrath out. It keeps the water out. So, so, and it's Romans chapter 8, verse 3. And notice this. So the rain, the wrath fell on the ark, on that thing made of wood, not on the people inside. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So notice, whose flesh is it talking about here? The flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus, on account of sin. Uh, the rest of that verse. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now remember, whose flesh context, whose flesh? Jesus. This isn't about, uh, my understanding of this when I was growing up was, listen, God always has to condemn sin, right? And if you sin, he'll condemn it in your body one way or another. No, context, the flesh he's talking about that sin was condemned in, the body he's talking about is the body of Jesus. This word condemned is not like Romans 8, 1, where we just say, uh, you know, a, a, you're, you, don't, you don't get a guilty verdict. This word condemned means, he, when you look it up, it means to receive a damning sentence and to be punished. So it's literally saying here, Jesus, God uh, punished sin in the body of Jesus. So on the cross, the ark, the wrath of God fell. People say, that's awful. No, it's not, because if you're in the ark, that's good news. The rain never touched Noah. The rain never touched his family. The rain never touched his daughters. It only touched the ark. Now, it did touch those on the outside, but the New Testament teaches us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. History tells us for 120 years, Noah was preaching, flood's coming, flood's coming, flood's coming. Better get in, better get in, better get in. But they scoffed at him. They laughed at him, right? But the offer was available. So here we see a picture of the cross. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 is another verse that brings this out. And it says, Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, 1 through 5. Let's look at this real quick. Actually, just go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So afterwards, in Genesis 8, um, we find where the floods are, are ending. Right? The, the, the rains have ended and, and the water is slowly beginning to go away. Now, Peter said something really interesting here in his epistle, which sometime he's speaking of the time of Noah, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism also now saves us. That's interesting. And a lot of times we can't explain that, so we just, you know, let's ignore that. And I understand for years I was like that. But he makes a point here, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer, answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying baptism saves us in a way. He's like, but then he makes sure, well, it's the resurrection of Jesus, but there's, there's, there's something powerful about baptism in all this. And he compares baptism to the flood of Noah. Why is that? All right, think about this. So in this type, 
the flood waters are baptism. Um, the old creation, the people that died, remember I said we're the dumb ones? That's us. The people that die in the flood, that's us. All right? But I want you to think about this. We're actually the earth. All right? We're, we're, we're the earth, not the people in this, this illustration. The earth, the old earth, and Peter calls it that in, in his epistle as well. The old earth, or the earth that was, he says. So the floods come, and notice it does away with everything that was old. All right? And when the floods go away, what's left? A new creation. All the old things have passed away. All that's left is new. The, the plants died, the animals died. All that's left, new. All right? And that's what baptism is supposed to teach us. Baptism doesn't save us in the sense of, well, it doesn't matter if you believe or not. Have you been baptized? Or, yeah, it's cool you believe, but have you been baptized? It's not that. It's that baptism is supposed to be a point of contact where we realize I'm going in an old creation. I'm coming out a new creation. And from this moment on, old things have passed away. All things have become new. I'm now a new creation in Christ Jesus. So here's good news in the flood of Noah. The ark is the cross. You're inside. Floods don't touch you. The, the flood... It's a sign of how you are now a new creation. One more, Genesis chapter 8, and then we're finished. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 6. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove. Now let me ask you something. What is a dove the symbol of? It's always a symbol of the Holy Spirit, Right? So here we have the Holy Spirit. So he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So notice he sends the dove. The dove comes right back because he couldn't find rest. All right. Then he put forth his hand, took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. In other words, um, she went, but she came back. She went out for a purpose. She came back. Verse 10, And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, but look here. And lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth a dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so notice the first time, the dove went, served its purpose, came back. Went, came back. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the dispensation of the Old Testament. The only time the Holy Spirit came was for a purpose. He would come upon someone, they would accomplish that purpose, the Holy Spirit would go back. He didn't stay on someone. He didn't abide in them like we have the Holy Spirit. Come and go. Come and go. The next time he releases the dove, the dove comes back, but this time he comes back with an olive leaf. An olive leaf is a symbol of a new beginning, a new creation. An olive leaf is a sign. Think about springtime. It's a, it's a sign new things have come. This is the type of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was showing us something new is coming. Notice, notice the, the dove didn't, didn't stay gone because the new hadn't quite yet come, but it was coming. That's the ministry of Jesus. This isn't the new covenant, but what was he going around saying all the time? The new's coming. 
The news coming. The news coming. And then the third time he sends out the dove, that time the dove doesn't come back. Why? That represents Jesus. That represents the Holy Spirit under this new dispensation, under this new covenant. When he doesn't go back, he doesn't come and go. He's on you, stays on you. He's in you, he stays in you. Right? There's a picture of this, and I have to show you this. There's a picture of this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, and I want to show this to you. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was, which is to come from the seven spirits which are... Now notice, the seven spirits, don't get fooled by that. All this, The seven spirits just represents the Holy Spirit. And I won't get into that, but that's what it represents. So notice here, in Revelation 1, the seven spirits are before his throne. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven... Uh, jump down to verse 5. Uh, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So where are they this time? Before the throne. All right. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Uh, verse 3. And no man in heaven nor in earth. Now, I love this, and I've preached this to you guys before. I love this because heaven wasn't looking for a God. They were looking for a man. That's powerful to me. Heaven wasn't looking for a God. They were looking for a man. They had a God on the throne, but they needed a man to make things right with that God. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Here's why we're here, verse 5. And one of the elders says unto me, Weep not, behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the book. So notice both of these references. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. Those are references to him and his humanity. They found a man. This is when Jesus has ascended to the Father. We know that because he shows up as a lamb slain. He appears as a lamb slain. So here's Jesus. He's been crucified. This is his ascension. He appears before the Father, and look what happens. It says, He's prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, look here, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Revelation 1 and 4, the spirit is before the throne, just like in the Old Testament just like in the ministry of Jesus. Comes and goes, but he's here. But in Revelation 5, after Jesus ascends before the Father and presents his blood, what's the first thing he does? The seven spirits go out into all the earth. Just like that dove. Noah released it. Remember, Noah is Jesus, and the dove goes and it stays. Right? John chapter 16, verse 7, our final verse. Nevertheless, I tell you, Jesus speaking, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, Revelation 5, we already departed, right? I will send him to you. What a beautiful picture. All of that in eight chapters in the book of Genesis. All of that. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue this. I said it would take another message or two. But I'm telling you, it just gets better. When you get to Joseph, listen, the entire plan of... The whole Bible is actually in the story of Joseph. The entire timeline of God 
If you wonder what's to come, it's actually in the story of Joseph. And there's, there's much more with Abraham and Jacob. I, it's all good. But has this blessed you guys today? Yes. Amen. Well, I'm going to just speak a blessing over you, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Jeremiah. Father, we just thank you for this, this, this beautiful revelation of your son, Jesus. Not just a revelation of who he is, but a revelation of him crucified. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that blood. We thank you for the pages of this book. And Lord, I just speak a blessing over these people that as they open up their Bibles, as they open up the Scriptures, that they will receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that they'll begin to see Jesus in places where they didn't know He he was even hidden, Father. I pray that those Scriptures that they're afraid of, that those Scriptures that were abused in their life, redeem those verses, redeem those words. And there's only one way I know for you to do so. Show them Jesus in those words. Show them Jesus in those verses. And so we thank you for it, Lord. Revelation come in Jesus' name. Amen.